I heard a story this week about a little boy who was late to Bible class. He was really late to Bible class on a Sunday morning. And it was unusual for this little boy to be so late to Bible class. And so it sort of concerned the Bible class teacher. And when he walked into the room, she said, is everything okay? And with a a very disappointed look on his face, he said, yes, I, I just didn't want to come to church today. I wanted to go fishing. And so she said, you know, why, why did you decide to come? He said, well, my dad told me that I couldn't go fishing and that I had to come to church instead. And she was kind of excited to hear that her da- his dad had, had told him that. And so she said, did your dad explain to you why it's more important to come to church than to go fishing? And he said, yes. He told me that he didn't have enough bait for both of us. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that you chose to be here instead of going fishing. I love you, church, and I appreciate you so very much. Last year, 28 Sundays, 28 Sundays, this room was empty. 28 Sundays, this room was empty. And we, of course, did online streaming, and we had parking lot services and worshiped outside and tried to be as creative as possible and do as much as possible to be together as much as possible, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same. And I longed to be back in this room with all of you. And I know that all of you longed to be back in this room with each other. And I know that even now we have people watching online, hundreds of people watching online, hundreds of families watching online who are longing to be back together in this room because there's nothing that takes the place of being together, assembling together, gathering together to encourage one another and worship God together. And so for all of those weeks, there was a a passage of scripture that I'm sure many of us thought about, that many of us probably quoted, that many of us asked about a verse that you're probably familiar with. We're going to read it now. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 in the King James Version says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. I'm sure that over those weeks, not just here in our area, but across the country and even across the world, many were asking, are we collectively forsaking the assembly? And I'm sure that many Christians were and continue to ask themselves and reflect on their own life and say, am I choosing to forsake the assembly? Is that what that means? And not only are people questioning that and asking that, I'm sure there are those that have been accusing others and pointing fingers and telling others that they're forsaking the assembly. And, and that, that's gone on for years, hasn't it? Somebody misses a a Sunday morning, or somebody misses Bible class, or somebody misses a Sunday night, or somebody misses a Wednesday night, or even if a congregation has a gospel meeting and somebody doesn't come to all four nights of the gospel meeting, somebody will inevitably say, you're forsaking the assembly. Is that what that means? Is that what this passage means? Is that what the Hebrew writer is trying to communicate? Are we really using this passage accurately if we, if we 
convict ourselves of this or we accuse others of this? Are we using this verse and these words the way the Hebrew writer intended for these words to be used? And the only way we can know that, whether we're using this verse rightly or not, is to look at the what? Context, right? That's what this series is all about, is context. And saying, when we look at this in context, what does this mean? And most importantly, how does this point to Jesus? How does this passage, how does what the Hebrew writer is saying help us to fix our eyes on Jesus? And if there's any book in the New Testament, if there's any book in the Bible that helps us to fix our eyes on Jesus, none none does it better than the book of Hebrews. That's what this book is all about. In fact, I'd argue that's what the entire Bible is all about. Are our eyes fixed on Jesus? And so the context of this book The context of Hebrews, the the big picture of Hebrews is that you have a, a group of Jewish Hebrew Christians who are struggling and they are discouraged and they are hurting and they're wondering, what have I gained by following Jesus? What have I gained by following Jesus? How is my life better now that I'm following Jesus than it was before, before I ever heard the name of Jesus, before I believed that he was the Messiah? How is my life better now than it was before? What have I gained that I didn't have before? And as they thought about the answer to that question, they might have said, well, I'll tell you what I've gained, persecution, pain, rejection, oppression, People have stolen my stuff. People have rejected me. People have said all kinds of horrible things about me. I've lost family. I've lost friends. I've lost material goods. I've lost money. I've lost time. I've lost energy. For what? What have I gained by following Jesus? Because from their perspective, it felt like the only thing they had gained was pain. And so the Hebrew writer is writing to to tell them, no, no, no. You have gained more than you can possibly imagine. You have more now than you ever dreamed of before. You have more right now in Christ than you ever dreamed of before. But he also warned them, if you walk away from him now, if you turn your back on him now, If you say, I'm just going to forget about this whole Jesus thing, and I'm going to forget about this whole Jesus way of living, I'm just going to stop being a disciple, you are going to lose more than you can possibly imagine. And so he was encouraging them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, on the one who had given them more than they could possibly imagine. And church, this is incredibly relevant for every single one of us, isn't it? This text, in context, is incredibly relevant for us because we all find ourselves in the same sort of discouragement. This is a passage and a book that's all about discouragement and what can encourage us when we're discouraged. It is Jesus. And it's focusing our mind and our heart on what we have in Jesus. So let's look at the context. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10 And verse 19, the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, brothers, based on everything that he's written up to this point, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, we're going to kind of stop here for a second, but in this long extended sentence, the Hebrew writer is going to give us two things we have and three things we should do because of what we have. Okay, so two things we have, and then three things we should do because of what we have. Do you see here in this text? He says, we have two things. We have. What do we have? We have, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places through the blood of Jesus. Now, don't you know that the the Jewish Christians in the first century felt like outsiders, Ever since we started to follow Jesus, we feel like outsiders. And maybe there's times where you feel like an outsider. And they would tell themselves that it would be easier and I could go back on the inside. I could be accepted again. I could be embraced again if I just walked away from Jesus. And the Hebrew writer says, no, actually, before Jesus, you were outsiders. Don't you remember? Don't you remember what it was like before Jesus? You were outsiders then. Because under the law of Moses, you couldn't come in even to the tabernacle. You really couldn't enter the holy places in the tabernacle. You remember how the tabernacle was? You had the holy place and then the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And there was only one person. Only one person could go into the most holy place. And it was the high priest. And he could only go in there once a year. Everybody else was outsiders. They were all outsiders. And the Hebrew writer says, but now, through the blood of Jesus, you're no longer outsiders, you're insiders. You've been brought into the most holy places, not just the the copies, that's what the tabernacle was, it was just a copy of the true holy place in heaven. And Jesus has gone there on our behalf, by his own blood, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but through his own blood. And he's brought you into the most holy place. And so now you are insiders of insiders. So stop believing the lie that you're outsiders. You're actually insiders. You've been brought into the most holy place. And now you have confidence. You have confidence to enter the very presence of God. Not through the curtain. Remember the holy place in the temple or the tabernacle was separated by a, by a big, thick curtain? You're not entering in through that curtain. You're entering in through the curtain of his flesh. His very body, his very blood makes you insiders. You have confidence to enter the very presence of God because of the blood of Jesus. And we all struggle with this, don't we? Because there's certain groups that we sort of want to break into, we want to be accepted by. There's certain groups that we want to be on the inside. And and so following Jesus often means you don't get to be on the inside of that group or this group or the other group. But you get to be on the inside with God. You get to be in God's inner circle, in his most holy place because of what Jesus has done for you. And now you have, you have confidence to enter the holy places. So number one, you have, we have confidence to enter. And then number two, we have a great priest. We have a great priest. Now notice it's not that we had a great priest. 
It's that we have a great priest. It isn't just that that Jesus did serve, past tense, as our priest. It's that he, present tense, is serving as our priest. That's something we don't often think about. Because their temptation in the first century was to go back and have the priest at the temple serve on their behalf. And the Hebrew writer kept saying, no, 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 listen, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything and anyone you'll find in any place. Jesus is better. Because these other priests, they serve for a while, and then what happens? They die, every single one of them. Even the very best of them are morally flawed, morally weak, and mortally weak. They die. And so he says in chapter 7 that they're all prevented from serving permanently because they die. But Jesus, Jesus serves permanently because he has everlasting life. Jesus is eternal. His priesthood is eternal. And so right now, right now, this is what you have. You have a great high priest who is constantly, continually interceding on your behalf. And see, church, this is what should motivate our obedience. Action that's divorced from faith is not obedience to God. Action that's divorced from faith, action that's separated from faith is not really obedience to God. Not only are there some things that the Hebrew writer wants the Christians to do, he wants them to know first what they have. Before you know or can even talk about what you should do, you have to know what you have. And so often we just want to know, what do I do? Just give me the steps, give me the formula, just tell me what to do. And the Hebrew writer would say, and Paul would say, and Jesus would say, You can't even discuss what you need to do unless you know what you have, unless you know what's been done for you, because this is what motivates true obedience. And so before he even gives us the three things that he says, let us do these things, he wants us to know what do we have, and what we have is confidence to enter the most holy places, because we also have a great priest who not only entered into the holy place on our behalf, but is continually, constantly, ongoing, serving as our priest, making intercession for us so that we have the confidence to enter God's presence. Look at verse 22. Now, the things that we do. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing we do is draw near. It's one thing to say that we have the confidence to draw near, but it's another thing to actually do it. Draw near. You've got to choose to do that, to draw near. And church, there's a difference between attending worship Attending assembly, attending the gathering, and drawing near. There's a difference between showing up and drawing near. And he says, we have to draw near. We have to choose to draw near. He's made a way for you so that you can be in the presence of God. Approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. Now do it. 
draw near to him. There's a difference between singing a song and allowing the song to help you to draw near. We could sing a song and not draw near, can't we? I know I have. I've sung a song and just gone through the motions. I've sung the same song for almost 40 years. Just sing it by memory. There's a difference between singing a song and allowing a song to help us to draw near. There's a difference between saying a prayer and listening to a prayer and actually allowing that prayer to draw us near to God. That's why the assembly is so important, because these songs and these prayers and this word and this gathering help us to draw near, but you have to choose, not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, to draw near. This is what we do because of what we have. So you have to ask yourself that, don't you? Not just are you attending, because obviously you're attending, whether you're online or you're here, you're attending, we're listening, but are we drawing near? Are we drawing near to the very throne of God? And he says, draw near with a true heart, with a true heart, that is a heart that is genuinely full of conviction and faith. Is your heart true? Is it true? Because I know there's, for me, there's been times when my heart hasn't been true. It hasn't been full of conviction and faith. It hasn't been purely, totally, completely, radically committed to God, focused on what we have in Jesus. He says, draw near with this true heart. He says, draw near with hearts sprinkled clean and bodies washed with pure water. Now, in the Greek, you may not care about this, but I think it's interesting. In the Greek, sprinkled and washed, they're in the perfect tense. In the perfect tense, which means it happened in the past, but it has ongoing effects. Now, that's important, isn't it? It happened in the past. Your heart was sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. If you're baptized, your heart was sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, and your body was washed with pure water. That happened in the past, but it has ongoing effects. Your heart is sprinkled clean. Your body has been washed. But we're always sort of doubting that, aren't we? Satan is always trying to tell us you don't really have access to God. Oh, maybe you had access to God at one time. You know, I've even heard people say things like, well, I wish I wish maybe they just held me down. The best place to die would be die in the baptistry because then you don't have to come up and mess everything up, right? No, wrong, no, no, wrong, nonsense. My body is just as purified today as it was when I was baptized. My heart is just as clean today as it was then. My heart is sprinkled. My body is washed, and so is yours if you are in Christ Jesus. And that's what he's telling them. Don't walk away from Jesus because in Jesus, your heart has been sprinkled clean. Your body has been washed with pure water. You don't need anything anyone else has to offer. Satan tries to tell us, no, you don't really have access to God. Or you do, but it's not really a big deal. And the Hebrew writer says it is a big deal. And if you don't stick with Jesus, you won't have that. You won't have that confidence to enter into the holy places. You won't have a high priest who's interceding for you. 
You won't have hearts that are sprinkled clean. You won't have bodies that are washed with pure water. But as it is, if you're following Jesus, this is what you have. So based on what you have, here's what you do. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. It's like the old saying, isn't it? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? Jesus can open up the way. But you have to decide. I have to decide whether or not we will actually draw near to God. Draw near to him, church. Draw near to him. That's number one. Number two, let us draw near to God. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He says, hold tightly to your confession, confession, that is your profession of allegiance. You have professed You have confessed allegiance. You've put your hope in Jesus. You've said, he's my Messiah. He's my king. And when your heart was sprinkled and your body was washed and your mouth spoke that confession that you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, you confessed that, didn't you? If you were baptized into Jesus, you confessed that. And now he says, here's what you do. In addition to drawing near to God, you hold fast, hold fast, hold tight, to your confession of faith. You said it. Now live it out. Hold fast to it. Don't waver. Don't walk away from him. Don't turn your back on him. Don't abandon him. Hold fast to your confession of faith. Hold fast to your confession of hope. You said, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, that he died for my sins, that he's been raised from the dead, that he's king of kings and lord of lords, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now hold fast to that confession. Don't waver. Don't walk away. Hold tight to that. You see, because they were were tempted to waver. They were tempted to hold loosely or to walk away completely. And so are we, aren't we? If we're real honest. And again, there's a difference between attending and holding fast to our confession. Because that's something you do not just on Sunday, but on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday when you're in the thick of it. When you're in the world, when you're surrounded by temptation, when you're surrounded by these things that cause you to doubt and to waver, he says, hold fast to your confession of hope. So based on what we have, confidence to enter the holy places and a great priest who's now interceding for us, draw near to God and hold fast to your confession of hope. But Pay attention to the last part of this phrase. He says, for he who promised is faithful. Even this, even the the things to do are still anchored in what we have. He says, hold fast, not because you're so strong. Hold fast because you're so good. Hold fast because you're so faithful. He says, hold fast because he is. Because the one who promised is faithful. Hold fast, not because you trust in your own steadfastness, in your own faithfulness, but because you trust in his. When you were a kid, you ever go to the pool and maybe your dad or maybe someone else held out their arms and said, jump to me, jump to me. And you were a little nervous, you know, maybe you kind of put one foot and you can just maybe try to sit down on the edge of the pool and just kind of scoot. No, 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 don't, 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 just jump to me. 
just jumped to me. And when you did, when you, when you bent your knees and you, you leaped off the edge and you jumped into his arms, it wasn't because you trusted your own power to jump well. It was because you trusted in his ability to catch you. And that's what we're doing when we hold fast to our confession of hope. We're saying, I don't, it's not because I trust me. It's because I trust you. It's because I trust that you really have given us confidence to enter the holy places and you really are serving as my great high priest. You really have offered your body and your blood to give me entrance into the presence of God. You've done these things and you're faithful to save me and you're faithful to redeem me and you're faithful to keep me from evil. When we leap into the arms of Jesus, it's not because we trust in our own power to leap. It's because we trust in his power to catch us and to save us. Hold fast, because the one who is promised is faithful. Look at verse 24, finally. And let us, here's the third one, let us, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. There's the third, let us. There's the third thing we're supposed to do. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's kind of put the negative to the side, because right in the middle there's a negative, isn't there? Not, not forsaking or not neglecting the assembling together of yourself. So let's set that aside for a second and think about the positives. What is the positive thing that he's telling us to do? And it's not just attend, is it? It's not just attend. It's consider, consider how to stir up one another. That means to excite one another. Consider, think about how to excite one another to love and good works and encourage one another all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ drawing near. Consider how to excite one another to love and good works and encourage one another. That's what we're called to do. Because of what we have, here's what we do. We draw near, we hold fast, and we think about how to excite and encourage one another. Let's talk about that, huh? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about going beyond just attending and ask ourselves, are we considering? Are we considering how to stir one another up, how to excite one another to love and good works? There were a lot of people in the first century world that were discouraged. And there's a lot of people in our world that are discouraged. Maybe you are discouraged. And that's one of the purposes of coming together is to excite one another, to be more loving, and to do more good works, to encourage one another, to build one another up based on what we have in Christ Jesus. Are you doing that? Are you exciting one another? Are you encouraging one another? As opposed to, as opposed to what? Forsaking, neglecting, abandoning the assembling together of ourselves. Now, this is a strong word, and we throw it around far too easily. Forsaking, neglecting, abandoning. This is a strong word, both in Greek and in English. It's a strong word. It's as if saying to a family member, you are neglecting the family. You have forsaken our family. You are in the habit. It has become your practice of neglecting us. 
Now, if I didn't get to have supper with my family tonight because I was ministering to someone else or taking care of something else or I had something else going on and I didn't get to be home for dinner tonight, would you call me up and say, Wes, you're neglecting your family? Would you say, Wes, you've gotten in the habit of forsaking your family? What if I was stranded somewhere, there was a bad snowstorm, and I couldn't get home for days, maybe even for weeks? Would you call me up and chastise me and say, Wes, how dare you get in the habit of neglecting your family like this, of forsaking your family, of abandoning your family? Now, there, there are people. There are people who are neglecting their family, abandoning their family, forsaking their family, both their biological family and their spiritual family. There were people in the first century that had already gotten into the habit, the practice, the way of life of abandoning and neglecting and forsaking their spiritual family. And he says, don't be like that. Don't neglect each other. Don't abandon each other. Don't forsake each other. And we need to be very careful that we don't accuse someone of forsaking or abandoning or neglecting that really hasn't done that. But we also want to make sure, don't we? All of us want to make sure that we're doing the opposite of forsaking, that we're doing the opposite of neglecting, that we're doing the opposite of abandoning. So what's the opposite of forsaking? According to this text, what's the opposite? The opposite of forsaking is not just attending, it's committing. The opposite of forsaking is not just attending, it's committing. I think that'll be on the screen. It's not just, it's not just attending, it's committing. Don't forsake. Don't neglect. Don't abandon. Instead, excite one another. Encourage one another. Be committed to each other. Be committed to Jesus and be committed to each other. Not just committed to showing up, but committing to stirring up. Committed to encouraging and exciting one another towards love and good works. It's really easy to just say, well, I attend. Wait, that's not what the Hebrew writer is telling you to do. Yes, attend, good, attend, yes. But the opposite of forsaking is not just attending. It's committing, committing to Jesus and committing to each other. And commitment in this text is measured by how much you're considering how to stir one another up, spur one another on, encourage one another. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? Church, I know some homebound members that haven't been able to attend in person in a long time that are far more committed to the church and to Jesus than I've ever been. I know some homebound members that are incredibly committed to exciting one another, encouraging one another, writing cards to people, sending texts to people, making phone calls to people. They can't leave their room, they can't leave their bed, but they're committed to Jesus and his people. And over the years, I've known Christians who show up, who attend, but aren't very committed to exciting other Christians, to encouraging one another. It's not just about attendance. It's about commitment. Are you committed? This is what we have. What we have is confidence to enter the most holy place. 
What we have is a great high priest who's interceding for us. And here's what we do. We draw near and we hold fast and we consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. So let's not just be content with attendance. Let's strive for commitment in ourselves and in each other. Because church, you've got brothers and sisters who are discouraged and they need you to encourage them, build them up, excite them to love and good works. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. Maybe you are discouraged. Maybe one of the shepherds can pray with you after service. Maybe we as a congregation can pray with you or pray for you. Or maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready to be baptized into Jesus, to have your hearts sprinkled clean with his blood, to have your bodies washed with pure water, to make the confession of faith and hope in him. And if we can help you this morning, now's a great opportunity to come forward as we stand and sing this song.